Well, good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Today is an exciting day, a day of many beginnings. Today begins our new program year, as we call it. Things like children in worship and new Sunday school classes are picking up. Some of your small groups are reconvening. Um, There's a lot of excitement here in the church and in our world around us. Maybe some of you are in new school years or businesses are picking up projects. Um, I hear that there's a sports that's like picking up right now, the, the NFL. My husband has not let me forget, right? It is a time of new beginnings. Um, it's very exciting. We, we had new members join. Can we just give them a round of applause for getting up here and doing that? It takes guts to, you all are a very lovely people to look out on, but it takes guts to come up here and share your life with such a large group. So um, thank you all for sharing. So we're in a time of new beginnings, and new beginnings can be very exciting and full of lots of hope. But we also acknowledge, and I want to name that maybe some of us might be feeling a little bit of anxiety, too, in a season of new beginnings. Has anyone felt a little bit of that? Maybe our teachers and students especially. So new beginnings, they, they can bring about some, some worry and anxiety because of, of busyness. If you're a person whose calendar is suddenly really, really full, maybe today you find yourself wondering, How am I going to handle all of these commitments one more year? Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe your calendar isn't jam-packed full, and you're wondering, where is everyone going? I miss that time with my kids and grandkids. I miss those free outdoor community activities where we gather around those neighborhood picnics. Where is everyone going? I'm starting to feel lonely in all the hustle and bustle. Has anyone here ever felt on one end of those spectrums in this beginning of the fall season? It's the way of our world. It is. It is. Over busyness or over loneliness or often sometimes both. But what if I told you that there's a different way? What if I told you that in the very beginning of the world, in the beginning of the world, God created a rhythm, a rhythm that leads not to anxiety, not to busyness, not to loneliness, a beginning instead that has rhythms within it that lead to life and flourishing and community and peace for everyone, young and old, rich and poor, humans, plants, and animals alike that that rhythm is woven into the very creation we experience now. These rhythms are some of what we find in our text for today, Genesis 1 to 2, and we're going to to read that together. But before I read, I, I need to take a minute to note why we are here in Genesis today, and that's a note about the narrative lectionary. So we've explained this a little bit in previous years, but it's, it's worth returning to just so you know why we're preaching through what we, what we are. So we are following the narrative lectionary. The lectionary is just a fancy way of saying this schedule of pre-selected texts. And they go in order from Genesis to Revelation. We'll follow that from September through May. So you get the whole sweep of the biblical story. 
And there are so many benefits to following the lectionary. I'm going to name just three real quickly. First, and perhaps most important, is that we let God lead us. So if we as preachers or, or congregants are just picking what we want to choose in the Bible, we can often just pick, pick the pet topics that we want to study, and we can forget and overlook some really important parts of Scripture that we need to hear. So second is that you might be surprised to find that the words that are chosen for us those days speak volumes into our present-day concerns. So today, for example, I'm going to show us how Genesis 1 speaks into our conversations about the alienation of youth in our church and culture. There's a lot to be said right here in Genesis 1. Because, friends, there's nothing new under the sun. We humans change. We might think we have brand new problems, but God has been the same. God interacts with creation in the same way. So most of our present-day concerns can be addressed pretty well through Scripture. And third, the lectionary deepens us in our relationship with, with Christians across time and space. Some, some of our new members joined, shared how they had been from different traditions. Well, this connects us to where they come from, and it connects us to our friends who are in different traditions. It connects us to Christians who lived 1,900 years ago because Christians have been following this for a long time. Jesus probably followed a lectionary. The Jewish people follow a Jewish lectionary. So if that's not an argument for it, I don't know what is. Jesus probably did it. So I want to point out that this year, uh, the Gospel of John is the focus. So there are four years to the lectionary, and we look at the Old Testament text specifically with trying to connect it to the gospel. So this year, the focus is the gospel of John. And you're going to hear in all of our Old Testament texts themes that you will hear again in the gospel of John. This is a way of helping us see how the Old Testament and the New Testament weave together and are connected. So, for example, a main theme of John is life. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. In fact, our text for today is mimicked in the very opening of John's gospel. So life, this is a main theme we're going to be living into this year, the fullness of life. And where do we hear that start? Genesis 1. So friends, I invite you to read now together. We're going to read responsibly Genesis 1. Because to tie back to how we opened, we need to see that God created the world, has woven into the fabric of creation in our lives a rhythm, a life-giving rhythm that leads to peace and joy and flourishing, not busyness or loneliness on either end. So with this framework of life-giving rhythms in mind, I invite you to follow along with me now in the reading of our scripture, Genesis 1. You will read the parts in bold. Go ahead. Before we read, let me pray for us. Lord, may you enlighten our hearts to receive your word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the day day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the sky, sky. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let there be for them signs for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning the first day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind, with which the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have for them for food. 
and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. This is the word of the Lord. So there are a few rhythms, a few refrains we hear in this text that many of you have heard before, but I need to point out the rhythms that are here to bring them to attention. One is that God saw that it was good. My friends, God's story begins with goodness. God made this world and all that is in it good. The story doesn't start with sin. We're not to Genesis 3 yet. The story, God's story, your story, my story begins with goodness. And this might seem obvious, but it's something that we can actually often overlook. Many of us who are Christians really get the fact that we're sinners. We know that deep in our bones. We get Genesis 3. We get the fall. And Sadly, we sometimes start there. But friends, the fall is not our primary identity. That's not the beginning of the story. In the beginning, we were created good. And through Jesus Christ, who we'll hear about in the Gospel of John, we are made good and whole again. Even now in this life, Christ makes us whole Yes, we still sin, but our primary identity is not as sinners. Our primary identity is that we are good. We are image bearers of God. God delights in us. God celebrates us. So maybe maybe you even know that concept in your mind, but it's hard to get in your heart. So I invite you to think about a child you know. Maybe it's your own child. Maybe it's a child you love, a grandchild or a neighbor. Think about your view of that child. My experience with Lily is that before she was even born, I knew deep in my bones that she was good. I delight in her. I celebrate her. I love her with all that I am. Not because of anything she's done, simply because she is. And she is good. And as she gets older, she's going to do things that we call sin. I'm sure she's going to rebel, as some other parents have told me. It's, we hear some chuckles, yeah. And it's going to make me angry. And I'm going to want her to turn from those ways, but not because I want her to make herself good. Because she already is good. I will want her to turn from those ways so that she can live into the life that God desires for her. A life that leads to life and peace for her and for those around her. So I don't want her to turn to make herself good. I want her to know that she is 
good. God loves her, and God invites her to live into that good way he has made her. So if I think about like that, about my own child, and God is our perfect heavenly parent, how much more does God believe that about us? Can you take that in for yourself? Can you truly believe it for yourself? That you are good. That God delights in you. That God celebrates you. Not for anything you do, but simply because you are. That who you are in Christ is whole and oh so good. Can we believe that as a church? Amen. This is the beginning of the story, goodness. But we don't, when we don't start with the beginning, when we start instead with our sin, we end up operating out of a place of shame. So shame, we need to define. Shame is different from guilt. Guilt says, I've done something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt has a place in the church. Guilt is a gift of the Holy Spirit to say, you are erring from the way that God made you to live, and I invite you back into a better way. But shame, shame plays no place in the Christian story. Because the beginning of our story is not that you were created bad. You are not a bad person. You are an image bearer of Christ, of God, who sometimes does bad things. But the core is that you are good. This is a really important distinction to make because the truth is our culture lives out of a shame-based narrative. It doesn't live out of a goodness of creation narrative, and it's really unhealthy for us and for all of our relationships. And there are two things that that the shame-based way of living can lead to, and we are immersed in it every day. One, perhaps, is one that many of you are feeling, is it can lead us to frantic busyness. And the world tells us this all the time, that you are not good enough yet. You need to be frantically busy earning your worth and approval. You need to achieve. You need to own more. You need to look better. You even sometimes need to serve more people all the time until you're utterly exhausted and spent. This is the message we get. More, 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 more. And then you will be good. Has anyone ever felt themselves on that hamster wheel? Yes. We have one person. I've been there. I am continually fighting this. But friends, this this story, this hamster wheel really is a hamster wheel. It doesn't get us there because we can't make ourselves good. We have to accept the fact that God has made us good. That God has made us his image bearers. We can't achieve that. It is a gift. Perhaps you're not feeling that today. But I think it's important for us to know because this, this cultural narrative, it's really hitting our youth and young adults really, really hard. I've been reading this book um, called Hurt by Chap Clark, Inside the World of Today's Teenagers. 
And I just read it weeping this week. It connects with my experience as a teenager, and I'm 31, so that was a while ago. And I think things have escalated since then. The world's even sometimes harder for our youth and young adults today because of this lie. So in a shame-based culture, youth are feeling like they have to earn their worthiness. They feel hurt. One of the ways that he wanted to label this book was abandoned, that many youth and young adults feel abandoned. And of course, this is not everyone's experience. Some youth and young adults here today may not feel this at all. But the research from across the country is that many do. And so as we try to reach out to youth and young adults in our communities, I think it's important for us to know. So let me explain this a little bit, what the shame-based culture is doing to our youth, why they feel so hurt. One is that they feel like adults are too busy for them. Their parents and the other adults around them, and I don't want to put a lot of blame on parents because parents are working so hard, but many of us other adults are often so busy that they feel like we don't have time for them, and they need us. And the second is that many youth feel forced into busyness and achievement from a very young age. Standardized testing, competitive sports starting at four, whatever else a family or community values, they feel like they have to achieve to earn their approval like many adults. So I even have this with my baby. I have this little app called Tiny Beans that Phil Schoff introduced me to. It's awesome. But... It has milestones for my baby. She's 10 months, and it says, can she do this, this to this, or all this silly stuff, and she gets little trophies if she does the things right. And for her first three to four months, I was trying to check all the milestones, and I couldn't keep up. I couldn't keep up with the trophies for my baby. She's a baby. Friends, this is the world that we live in, even when we don't mean to, This is the world that our youth and young adults are living into, that they have to earn these trophies to make them worthy. Consider this quote that's from a high school student that's recorded in here. It it summarizes what many of us, um, many of the high schoolers interviewed for this book felt. These are um, students from across the U.S. The student says this, You have no one to ask you what's wrong. And you can't take it anymore. There's too much pressure. So what do you do? Do you find someone to talk to? The pressure is just too high, choking you like a noose. So you think, what's the point of fighting it all? All you need is someone to talk to, but it can't be your parents because they're always fighting. Isn't that sad? We are blessed here in this church to have many strong families many extended families that are together and live close, but that's not the reality for many of the youth in our world today. Over 50% grow up with divorced homes. Many of them don't live close to family. Even if they do, it's not the same kind of world as it used to be where it's just assumed that adults and children interact a lot together. Brothers and sisters, we need to wake up to the crisis that American youth are facing today. It is a crisis, and I believe God has gifted the church, even this particular church, in really beautiful ways to meet that crisis. 
At Heartland, in our specific conversations about next youth leaders, it's true, I do think, that we need someone to fill the shoes of Tim and Margie. But it can't just be youth leaders. It has to be an entire church. Our world has become far too age-segmented, and our youth are feeling it. They are feeling it hard. Because they're in a vulnerable age, they need people to walk alongside of them, not to just shove answers down their throats or to try to get them to be something or to give them a trophy. They need to know that they are loved and that they are valued, that they are created good. They don't have to have a trophy to give them goodness. And that's a story that is unique to the church. That is a story that we have, that in the beginning we were created good. So what happens is, what can happen even in the church is if we just say, okay, youth leader, take our children and take our high schoolers and take our college students, tend to them, if it's one or two people, the youth can end up feeling like, hey, I'm not valued in this body. Hey, they don't know how to interact with me, or they don't have time to interact with me, so I'm just put over here, and they don't get the interaction that they need from faithful adults. That was my experience in church. Perhaps, perhaps it wasn't yours here, because I think that's the beauty of small churches, Small churches can offer that in a way that some others can't. So I want to celebrate that here. But also be aware of these dynamics. So so now that I've laid out the problem, you might be thinking, okay, what do I do? Perhaps I'm already busy, or perhaps I just don't know what to do. So I'm going to give us just a few quick pointers. And this isn't going to make you more busy or more lonely. I think it helps to solve both of those. So one is that... We live into the Genesis message ourselves, this message of a good creation. We dig deeply into our identity with God, that we are created good, that God celebrates us, so we don't have to live frantically busy lifestyles trying to earn it ourselves. If we get off the hamster wheel, maybe some of our youth will see that it's okay to get off the hamster wheel too. But also, perhaps you're on the other side where you feel like, maybe I don't have anything to offer. I I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Well, this is where, again, we need to root ourselves in our identity. You are an image bearer of God. Can you understand that? You are an image bearer of God. No matter your age, no matter your ability, no matter your coolness factor, you bear God's image. So simply just being with someone, you are presenting the image of God to someone. And there is profound meaning in that. So know that you have infinitely more worth to offer people than you might think. Because you are an image bearer of God. So one way that we can love other people 
as image bearers of God is through three things that are listed in your bulletin. I invite you to turn there now. Because some of us still wonder, how do we do this? I I draw you to living the word number three. So research shows us that three ways that children experience love are one, sustained eye contact. Can you just, like, look at someone? (laughs) We can do that, right? You can look at someone. Yep. Undistracted listening, simply shutting our mouths. Not that hard. We can do it. Just, Just listening. An appropriate physical touch, like giving a handshake like we do in the passing of the peace. A hug, if it's appropriate. You wouldn't believe how many people are actually starved of appropriate physical touch. Now, this is what the research has shown is true for children, but I think it's true for all of us, isn't it? Have you ever had someone sit down with you, look you in the eyes, maybe put a hand on your shoulder and just listen to you? It's a sacred moment, isn't it? In that moment, you feel like God is there looking at you, listening to you. Friends, we can do this for our youth and young adults, can't we? We can do this for each other, can't we? I think so. I've seen many of you do it. For training on how to do this, we have to learn to let God do the same for us. We have to learn to be quiet, to just be before God in stillness and silence, to let God look at us to let God listen to us, to let God reach us through those around us, through the created order, to affirm to us that we are loved. Because before we can pour out love, we have to be poured into. So we need rhythms. Did you hear the rhythm in the creation narrative? Work and rest. Sabbath, work. Night and day. There is time for work during the day and sleep at night. That's actually something we're really overlooking. Most of our youth and young adults feel like sleep is a weakness. Like you have to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. I saw this at the college all the time. Like four hours of sleep is the norm, and it's killing them. Like their spirits are dying and their bodies are just wearing out. Maybe some of you feel it too. Can we celebrate that it's okay to sleep? Can you celebrate that today? That is not a weakness. That is part of the goodness. Some of you are like, yeah, nap time. (laughs) I know. It's okay. Part of the goodness of creation is respecting these rhythms that God has given us. And God calls us to sleep. It's okay. It's good. Let's celebrate sleep. Yeah. The new mom is like, yeah, (laughs) sleep. So let's help Let's help ourselves live into a rhythm by simply getting sleep, by simply honoring Sabbath, by respecting that God loves us, creates us good, and the ways that God made our bodies are good. It's okay to rest. We need that. That's, there's so much more that I can say. I have a lot of wonderful quotes that I've come across Um, in the past several weeks. I encourage you to keep this bulletin. Just savor these quotes. Look over them. Look into the Living the Word section. Try to practice some of those. Take this home. Please do, because there's way more to be said than I can say today.
but we'll keep the conversation going. But friends, one of the things that we've noted is that God created the world good. God speaks to us through more than just the Bible. God speaks to us through the created order, including things like bread and wine. And God wants to fill us first so that then we can fill others with what we have received. So that is why we come to the table each week. Because God wants to fill us abundantly through word and physical means like bread and juice. And then we can take those things out into the world. So with that in mind, let us come to the table.